to get even more intense right here in chapter 2. We just heard it read out to us. So before we do that, how about we ask God, let's pray to Him, let's ask Him to give us uh, everything that we need uh, to hear what He has to say to us tonight. Should we pray? Let's do it. Father, we ask that You speak to us now. We pray that Your words will strengthen us, that they will give us courage, that Your Spirit empowers us to trust in Your Word and gives us wisdom in what they reveal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, growing up, I was a bit of a strange child. I mean, like every kid, I had my hobbies and things that I liked. But you see, I had, had a bit of a thing for keeping everything in mint condition, right? And so what would happen was that, you know, for example, I'd get a new pair of shoes, I'd put them on, and I'd walk around in them really, really slowly. You're probably wondering why. Well, you see, I didn't want to crease them, right? I wanted to keep them completely perfect. And so what would happen was that I would be out for a night, and I'd come home, and then my parents would see me anxiously washing the soles of my shoes, scrubbing them clean, which is totally weird, right? But you see, the thing was that I was totally convinced that that was the best thing for me, and that was the best thing for my stuff as well. And so what happened was that no one was going to tell me otherwise. And so by the time I reached high school, my parents, being the loving and the wise people that they were, decided that something needed to change. This was not right. So what did they do? They sent me into the bush. Not unsupervised, but what they did was they signed me up for the cadet corps. And so what happened was, you know, every you know, few weeks I would go in these camps and, you know, my clothes would get completely filthy, right? I wouldn't have a shower for five days in a row. And you can just look at someone like me and you can see how traumatic that experience would have been, right? <laughs> completely traumatic. But you see, the thing is this. If it wasn't for my parents... I'd probably still be walking around like I used to. You see, friends, we've all had moments in our lives, haven't we, where we've thought that we've got it all figured out, that we know how it works. And in some ways, this sort of thinking, it's just a function of our culture, isn't it? I mean, we live in a culture that's decided that it all revolves around us, that we are the center of all knowledge and wisdom, and that, you know, truth is it's relative, and I guess God and what He has to say, well, that's kind of irrelevant, right? You see, when we get to Daniel 2, although we're looking at a setting which is 2,500 years ago, the context of, it, of the world has changed, but the heart of it hasn't, has it? Because we see here in this chapter is, what we see is a battle, a battle between the wisdom of the Babylonian kingdom on one hand and the wisdom of God's kingdom on the other, don't we? We see the unshakable king shaking in his boots with anxiety. And so what we're seeing here is that the wisdom of Babylon is at stake here, isn't it? And that's why Daniel chapter 2 pushes us, it really pushes us to this question, where is the true source of wisdom? And that's why the book of Daniel is such an important account for us, because this battle, it's happened today, isn't it? Because either God is the ultimate source of wisdom, or He's not. 
And chapter 2 shows us just how hostile this battle is, isn't it? I mean, let me refresh your memory, just in case you didn't get a chance to go through Daniel 1 with us last week. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he had the longest reign of any king in the Babylonian Empire. And so what happened was he conquered the Jewish nation. He didn't just destroy their cities, did he? He actually tried to destroy their culture as well. And so what he did was, was that he leveraged the most influential Jews to live and to breathe their polytheistic, idol-worshipping culture in Babylon. And we saw that all in chapter 1 last week. And as we heard earlier tonight, things don't get better in chapter 2, do they? Because Nebuchadnezzar, this guy, as we've just heard, he is what you'd call a piece of work. He's had a bad dream. He hasn't been sleeping well. You can see that in verse 1. So what happens? He's anxious. Verse 3. So what? He takes it out in his staff like every terrible boss. Verse 2, have a look. It says he summons all of the people with influence who know stuff and can predict the future. All the people who he sees as particularly important and influential. And he says to them, tell me what this dream is and what it means. And if you don't, what's he going to do? I'm going to have you ripped apart, literally, verse 5, and turn your house into a garbage dump. I mean, that's terrifying, isn't it? Verse 5. I mean, this guy's what you'd call a successful psychopath. Hear me out for a second. So according to psychologist David, uh, Dr. Nathan Brooks, he says that these successful psychopaths are high flyers who lack sincerity or empathy or remorse. They're kind of charming but superficial at the same time. And they're more likely to engage in bullying and unethical business practices. And more importantly, they always think they're right. And Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he's taken it to a whole new level, hasn't he? And of course, these diviners and mediums and sorcerers, the Chaldeans or other translations call them influential wise men, they were probably astrologers. I mean, surprise, surprise, they can't read minds, can they? Verse 10, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. No king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this. Why? Because they aren't the true source of wisdom, are they? God is. And so when we come to this account in Daniel 2, we're called to do this for us. Find the true source of wisdom in God. So tonight I want us to look at three things. Firstly, how do we seek the true source of wisdom? How do we do that? Secondly, what happens when we don't seek the true source of wisdom? And then finally, why must we seek the true source of wisdom? You guys with me? Let's go to our first question. How do we seek the true source of wisdom? How does Daniel do it? He goes to God first, doesn't he? You see that? He doesn't rely on his own intellectual abilities or his expertise. He relies on the sovereignty of God, that God's in control, not these mute idols of the Babylonians. And so in verse 17, he says to his friends, look, we're in a really tight place. We need God's help or else we're dead. 
But verse 18, ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery. And so what happens is verse 19, God reveals a mystery to him in a vision at night, right? I mean, seeking God first, that might seem obvious to some of us, but is it? Is it really that obvious? I mean, how often have we prayed to God for guidance and wisdom as if our life actually depended on it? That if God didn't come through, we'd really be in a bad way? Or is it more like, God, give me wisdom? But you know what? I've already decided what I'm going to do. But I mean, compare that to what Daniel does. He gets it, doesn't he? I mean, he can see that his total dependence on God's wisdom and sovereignty to reveal that dream is what's going to get him through. And so he gets his friends um, to really pray for this situation that they're in. And look, have a look at verse 20. These words are just magnificent. Listen to them. May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells in him. See, see what I mean? But friends, you know what? I find that really hard because I have had the privilege of an education. I live in a world which is filled with strategic planning, which leverages self-sufficiency. I mean, when you, when you look at Nebuchadnezzar, it is just crazy, isn't it? And so, you know, for us, you know, when, when things go wrong, when we're faced with challenges, where do we tend to go to first? Either we try to fix it ourselves, right? But when that doesn't work, it leaves us anxious and worried, doesn't it? So where do we go next? And what do we do next? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he had his wise men, but we've got ours too, right? We've got people that we rely on, whether it's our friends and our family. I mean, we might even pay good money to them to help us predict and navigate the best path for us, whatever that means, whether it's our financial planners, our economists, our political analysts. Friends, go to God first. He's the one who's in control. He's got the wisdom that you and I need. That's the first thing. So our second question is this. What happens when we don't seek the true source of wisdom? We see what happens right here um, is quite striking, isn't it? But let me ask you this. Why, why is Nebuchadnezzar so worked up? I mean, this guy, he's at the top of his game, isn't he? He's probably one of the, you know, history's top 100 most powerful men in history. Time Magazine's Man of the Year, 600 BC. And yet, don't you think it's a bit weird that he's so stressed out by this dream? I mean, you can see it right there in verses 8 and 9, right? And then verse 12, if you have a look at your Bibles, he just flips it, doesn't he? You see, the answer is this. When we seek someone or something else that isn't God as the true source of wisdom, it's going to leave us ultimately anxious and insecure. 
won it. And that's exactly what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. Let me explain. So as a child, I used to sleepwalk. Things are getting weirder by the moment. But not just any type of sleepwalking. So one night, and uh, my parents will attest to this, I was about six years old, and my parents and my aunties and my uncles, they're all sitting out in the lounge having a chat. And I come out during one of my sleepwalking episodes. But what happened was that, was that I'd unpacked my violin, that's the first thing that's strange, and I started playing it, completely asleep, tears streaming down my face. And you see, what happened was that I'd started playing the violin when I was about four, and I'd been performing in front of you know, hundreds of people in concerts every few months. And so what happened was that I'd literally practice for hours and hours on end. Because for me, the worst thing was basically stuffing up a performance in front of a crowd. And so underneath all this lurked this self-imposed fear and anxiety, right? So friends, what was driving King Nebuchadnezzar's fear and anxiety? Well, to answer that, we're going to have a look at his dream. So come with me to verse 31. So he has a dream of a massive, tall, dazzling statue, doesn't he? It's got a head of pure gold. It's got arms of silver. It's got a stomach of bronze, legs of iron, and feet that are partly iron and clay. And then something happens in verse 34, doesn't it? Some stone, it breaks off, we don't know where, and it just smashes, it completely smashes the entire statue to dust. I mean, you can see exactly why Nebuchadnezzar is anxious, right? Because he's got a pretty good idea what this dream is about. It's a dream about his future and his kingdom, isn't it? And he has no idea what to do with it because he just can't control the future. And nor can the wise men that he's surrounded himself with. I mean, they can't even tell him what the dream is, right? And so what happens is he's looking for answers in all the wrong places. You see, friends, you and I, we live in a culture riddled with fear and anxiety, don't we? I mean, we want to be in control. We want certainty. We want to know our future. We want to know where our careers are going to be in five years' time, where we're going to be in the pecking order. And so what happens is social commentator Alan de Botton in his book, Status and Anxiety, says this about us, and I think it's really insightful. Just listen up. We're tempted to believe that certain achievements and possessions will give us enduring satisfaction. We're invited to imagine ourselves scaling the steep cliff face of happiness in order to reach a wide, high plateau on which we'll live out the rest of our lives. We're not reminded that soon after gaining the summit, we'll be called down again into the fresh lowlands of anxiety and desire. He's right, isn't he? So friends, let's turn to our final question tonight. Why must we seek the true source of wisdom? Well, firstly, we've got to understand what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel helpfully explains that to us in verse 36 onwards. So let's have a look at that. But basically, when we go to verse 36, what we're looking at is a man-made statue that's made of precious metals, aren't we? There's gold, 
there's silver, there's bronze, there's iron, there's the head of gold. That's the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now have a look at verse 38. You can see, see exactly what it says there, right? Now what's clear from the passage is this, is that the silver, the bronze, and the iron parts of the statue, well, they represent three future kingdoms that will follow Nebuchadnezzar's. And you can see that in verse 39. But what isn't entirely clear is what these kingdoms refer to. Now, some commentators have said that three, these three kingdoms are the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires, which followed King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which seems pretty plausible in my eyes. But there's something unusual about this statue, isn't, isn't there? Have a look at it. Did you notice it? What's its feet made of? What's it say in verse 33? Iron and clay, right? You see, Daniel really doesn't want us to miss this. Because have a look at verse 41. I'm going to read it out. You see, you saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. Again, you see the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay, and a part of the kingdom will be strong, and a part will be brittle. And just in case you missed it, for the third time, you saw the iron mixed with clay. The people will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. Do you get it? And his point is this. As strong and as impressive as the kingdoms of this statue will be, there's a fundamental weakness to all of them, isn't there? Because the true substance of that statue, it's in its foundations, right? And what's that kingdom built on? What are those kingdoms built on? It's clay. You see that? But friends, there's one more piece that's really, really important here, isn't there? And that's the stone in verse 34. The stone that tests the true substance of those kingdoms. And Daniel describes it in verse 44 as the enduring eternal rock. Because here's the thing. Firstly, unlike the rest of the statue, the rock isn't made or isn't moved by human hands, is it? And you can see that in verses 34 and 45. Daniel draws our attention to it. And secondly, it's the smallest and the least valuable peace in the eyes of the world, isn't it? And yet what happens? It grows, doesn't it? See what it says in verse 34? The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Its impact, it's unavoidable because it crushes all the kingdoms that come before it. And that rock, as Daniel explains to us at the start of verse 44, is God's eternal kingdom. You see why we must seek the true source of wisdom in God? It's simple, isn't it? Because all other wisdom is going to fail us ultimately. You see, friends, the wisdom of the world says this. It says, build your kingdom. It says, carve out, you know, your, your place in the world, and you can build it on whatever you want. You can build it on popularity. You can build it on success on beauty, on money. But friends, we know this. None of these things are going to last, are they? 
Because at the end of the day, they're going to leave us feeling completely anxious and insecure, right? See, Pastor Tim Keller says this, and I think it's really insightful. He says that if you're building your kingdom on popularity, you're going to be scared of the polls. If it's money, you're going to be fearful of the markets. If it's on beauty, you're going to be terrified of what you see in the mirror. See, these kingdoms, just like Nebuchadnezzar and the ones that followed it, they're not going to be around forever because they're going to be overthrown by God's eternal kingdom. See, friends, I um, really love my French pastries and cakes, which kind of explains a lot about why my clothes seem to be getting tighter and tighter every year. They're pretty tight already. Um, so after my, uh, our 10-month-old Marcus was born, I took three months off work. And so basically every week, I would go to this French patisserie just around the corner from, from our place. And just you know, over the, those weeks, I got to know the owner uh, pretty well. And you know, there was one time where we were chatting away, and she mentioned that at every significant part of her life, she would always go and see an astrologer to predict what the next season of life would be like. And so I asked her, so exactly how accurate is this guy? And she explained that he wasn't at all. Um, and so I said, but you keep on seeing him, right? And she said, yeah, I do. And I asked, well, why? And she said, well, it gives me peace of mind. You see, friends, our world lives in fear and anxiety, doesn't it? Because it seeks wisdom in all the wrong places. It tempts us to build our kingdoms on all the wrong things and for all the wrong reasons. But Daniel reminds us that God's wisdom is found in this, the eternal rock of his kingdom. And that rock, friends, is the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, isn't it? Did you remember Jesus when he came? Wasn't he like that small rock in the dream? He was in weakness, wasn't it? That even though he opened for humanity a window of hope, his message of love and forgiveness between us and God, where did it all begin? Not in the palace, but in a manger in some backwater town. He brought us peace, not through power, but on a cross, didn't he? But friends, that's not where it ends, is it? Because Jesus' kingdom, like that eternal rock, it's growing every day as people like you and me continue to seek to lay down our own wisdom and the kingdoms that we've built to seek the true source of God's wisdom in him. And Jesus, he promises to come again, doesn't he? To crush these kingdoms, to establish God's kingdom forever. So friends, let's keep finding the true source of wisdom in the eternal God. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father God, we just want to come before you and acknowledge that we have gone our own way. We've all sought our own wisdom. And Father, we want to come before you with broken hearts and instead to seek your glorious and good wisdom. Your wisdom which gives us peace. Your wisdom which gives us hope. And Father, we want to pray that as we live in a world which continues to call us to strive to build our own kingdoms, Lord God, may instead we find hope in your kingdom and to build 
that kingdom until the last day when you call us home. And Father, we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.